Section 11 of The Chorus Girl and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tavarish. The Chorus Girl and Other Stories by Anton Chekhov. Translated by Constance Garnett. On the Road. Quote, Upon the breast of a gigantic crag, a golden cloudlet rested for one night. Lermontov. In the room which the tavern keeper, the Cossack Semyon Chistaplui, called the traveller's room, that is kept exclusively for travellers, a tall, broad shouldered man of forty was sitting at the big unpainted table. He was asleep, with his elbows on the table and his head leaning on his fist. An end of tallow candle stuck into an old pomatum pot lighted up his light brown beard, his thick broad nose, his sunburnt cheeks, and the thick black eyebrows overhanging his closed eyes. The nose and the cheeks and the eyebrows, all the features each taken separately, were coarse and heavy like the furniture and the stove in the traveller's room, but taken all together they gave the effect of something harmonious and even beautiful. Such is the lucky star, as it is called, of the Russian face. The coarser and harsher its features, the softer and more good-natured it looks. The man was dressed in a gentleman's reefer jacket, shabby but bound with wide new braid a plush waistcoat and full black trousers thrust into big high boots on one of the benches which stood in a continuous row along the wall a girl of eight in a brown dress and long black stockings lay asleep on a coat lined with fox her face was pale, her hair was flaxen, her shoulders were narrow, her whole body was thin and frail, but her nose stood out as thick and ugly a lump as the man's. She was sound asleep and unconscious that her semicircular comb had fallen off her head and was cutting her cheek. The traveller's room had a festive appearance. The air was full of the smell of freshly scrubbed floors. There were no rags hanging as usual on the line that ran diagonally across the room, and a little lamp was burning in the corner over the table, casting a patch of red light on the icon of St. George the Victorious. From the icon, stretched on each side of the corner, a row of cheap oleographs which maintained a strict and careful gradation in the transition from the sacred to the profane. In the dim light of the candle end and the red icon lamp, the pictures looked like one continuous stripe covered with blurs of black. When the tiled stove trying to sing in unison with the weather drew in the air with a howl, while the logs, as though waking up, burst into bright flame and hissed angrily, red patches began dancing on the log walls, and over the head of the sleeping man could be seen first 
the elder Seraphim, then the Shah Nazir din then a fat brown baby with goggle eyes whispering in the ear of a young girl with an extraordinarily blank and indifferent face. Outside a storm was raging, something frantic and wrathful, but profoundly unhappy, seemed to be flinging itself about the tavern with the ferocity of a wild beast, and trying to break in, banging at the doors, knocking at the windows, and on the roof, scratching at the walls, it alternately threatened and besought, then subsided for a brief interval, and then with a gleeful, treacherous howl burst into the chimney, but the wood flared up, and the fire, like a chained dog, flew wrathfully to meet its foe. A battle began, and after it, sobs, shrieks, howls of wrath. In all of this there was the sound of angry misery, and unsatisfied hate, and the mortified impatience of something accustomed to triumph. Bewitched by this wild inhuman music, the traveller's room seemed spellbound forever, but all at once the door creaked, and the pot-boy, in a new print shirt, came in. Limping on one leg and blinking his sleepy eyes, he snuffed the candle with his fingers, put some more wood on the fire, and went out. At once, from the church, which was three hundred paces from the tavern, the clock struck midnight. The wind played with the chimes as with the snowflakes. Chasing the sounds of the clock, it whirled them round and round over a vast space, so that some strokes were cut short or drawn out in long vibrating notes, while others were completely lost in the general uproar. One stroke sounded as distinctly in the room as though it had chimed just under the window. The child, sleeping on the fox-skin, started and raised her head. For a minute she stared blankly at the dark window, at Nazir din over whom a crimson glow from the fire flickered at that moment. Then she turned her eyes upon the sleeping man. "'Daddy!' she said. But the man did not move. The little girl knitted her brow angrily, lay down, and curled up her legs. Someone in the tavern gave a loud, prolonged yawn. Soon afterwards there was the squeak of the swing door and the sound of indistinct voices. Someone came in, shaking the snow off and stamping in felt boots, which made a muffled thud. "'What is it?' a woman's voice asked languidly. "'Mademoiselle Ilovaisky has come,' answered a bass voice. Again there was the squeak of the swing door, then came the roar of the wind rushing in. Someone, probably the lame boy, ran to the door leading to the traveller's room, coughed deferentially, and lifted the latch. "'This way, lady, please.' said a woman's voice in dulcet tones. It's clean in here, my beauty. The door was opened wide, and a peasant with a beard, 
appeared in the doorway in the long coat of a coachman plastered all over with snow from head to foot and carrying a big trunk on his shoulder he was followed into the room by a feminine figure scarcely half his height with no face and no arms muffled and wrapped up like a bundle and also covered with snow a damp chill as from a cellar seemed to come to the child from the coachman and the bundle and the fire and the candles flickered what nonsense said the bundle angrily we could go perfectly well we have only nine more miles to go mostly by the forest and we should not get lost as for getting lost we shouldn't but the horses can't go on lady answered the coachman and it is thy will o lord as though it had done it on purpose god knows where you have brought me well be quiet there are people asleep here it seems you can go the coachman put the portmanteau on the floor and as he did so a great lump of snow fell off his shoulders he gave a sniff and went out then the little girl saw two little hands come out from the middle of the bundle stretch upwards and begin angrily disentangling the network of shawls kerchiefs and scarves first a big shawl fell on the ground then a hood then a white knitted kerchief after freeing her head the traveller took off her pelisse and at once shrank to half the size now she was in a long grey coat with big buttons and bulging pockets from one pocket she pulled out a paper parcel from the other a bunch of big heavy keys which she put down so carelessly that the sleeping man started and opened his eyes for some time he looked blankly around him as though he didn't know where he was then he shook his head went to the corner and sat down the newcomer took off her great coat which made her shrink to half her size again she took off her big felt boots and sat down too by now she no longer resembled a bundle she was a thin little brunette of twenty as slim as a snake with a long white face and curly hair her nose was long and sharp her chin too was long and sharp her eyelashes were long and the corners of her mouth were sharp and thanks to this general sharpness the expression of her face was biting swathed in a closely fitting black dress with a mass of lace at her neck and sleeves with sharp elbows and long pink fingers she recalled the portraits of medieval english ladies the grave concentration of her face increased this likeness the lady looked round at the room glanced sideways at the man and the little girl shrugged her shoulders and moved to the window the dark windows were shaking from the damp west wind big flakes of snow glistening in their whiteness lay on the window frame but at once disappeared borne away by the wind the savage music grew louder and louder 
after a long silence the little girl suddenly turned over and said angrily emphasizing each word oh goodness goodness how unhappy i am unhappier than anyone the man got up and moved with little steps to the child with a guilty air which was utterly out of keeping with his huge figure and big beard are you not asleep dearie he said in an apologetic voice what do you want i don't want anything my shoulder aches you are a wicked man daddy and god will punish you you'll see he will punish you my darling i know your shoulder aches but what can i do dearie said the man in the tone in which men who have been drinking excuse themselves to their stern spouses it's the journey has made your shoulder ache sasha to-morrow we shall get there and rest and the pain will go away to-morrow to-morrow every day you say to-morrow we shall be going on another twenty days but we shall arrive to-morrow dearie on your father's word of honour i never tell a lie but if we are detained by the snowstorm it is not my fault i can't bear it any more i can't i can't sasha jerked her leg abruptly and filled the room with an unpleasant wailing her father made a despairing gesture and looked hopelessly towards the young lady the latter shrugged her shoulders and hesitantly went up to sasha listen my dear she said it is no use crying it's really naughty if your shoulder aches it can't be helped you see madam said the man quickly as though defending himself we have not slept for two nights and have been travelling in a revolting conveyance well of course it is natural she should be ill and miserable and then you know we had a drunken driver our portmanteau has been stolen the snowstorm all the time but what's the use of crying madam i am exhausted though by sleeping in a sitting position and i feel as though i were drunk oh dear sasha and i feel sick as it is and then you cry the man shook his head and with a gesture of despair sat down of course you mustn't cry said the young lady it's only little babies cry if you are ill dear you must undress and go to sleep let us take off your things when the child had been undressed and pacified a silence reigned again the young lady seated herself at the window and looked round wonderingly at the room of the inn at the icon at the stove apparently the room and the little girl with the thick nose in her short boy's nightgown and the child's father all seemed strange to her this strange man was sitting in a corner he kept looking about him helplessly as though he were drunk and rubbing his face with the palm of his hand he sat silent blinking and judging from his guilty-looking figure it was difficult to imagine that he would soon begin to speak yet he was the first to begin 
Stroking his knees, he gave a cough, laughed, and said, It's a comedy, it really is. I look and I cannot believe my eyes. For what devilry has destiny driven us to this accursed inn? What did she want to show by it? Life sometimes performs such salto mortale. One can only stare and blink in amazement. Have you come from far, madam? No, not from far, answered the young lady. I'm going from our estate, fifteen miles from here, to our farm, to my father and brother. My name is Ilovaisky, and the farm is called Ilovaiskaya. It's nine miles away. What unpleasant weather! It couldn't be worse. The lame boy came in and stuck a new candle in the pomatum pot. You might bring us the samovar, boy, said the man, addressing him. Who drinks tea now? laughed the boy. It is a sin to drink tea before mass. Never mind, boy, you won't burn in hell if we do. Over the tea, the new acquaintances got into conversation. Mademoiselle Ilovaisky learned that her companion was called Grigory Petrovich Likharev, that he was the brother of the Likharev who was marshal of nobility in one of the neighboring districts, and he himself had once been a landowner, but had run through everything in his time. Likharev learned that her name was Maria Mikhailovna, that her father had a huge estate, but that she was the only one to look after it as her father and brother looked at life through their fingers, were irresponsible and were too fond of harriers. My father and brother are all alone at the farm, she told him, brandishing her fingers. She had the habit of moving her fingers before her pointed face as she talked, and after every sentence moistened her lips with her sharp little tongue. They, I mean men, are an irresponsible lot, and don't stir a finger for themselves. I can fancy there will be no one to give them a meal after the fast. We have no mother, and we have such servants that they can't lay the tablecloth properly when I'm away. You can imagine their condition now. They will be left with nothing to break their fast, while I have to stay here all night. How strange it all is! She shrugged her shoulders, took a sip from her cup, and said, There are festivals that have a special fragrance. At Easter, Trinity, and Christmas there is a peculiar scent in the air. Even unbelievers are fond of those festivals. My brother, for instance, argues that there is no God, but he is the first to hurry to matins at Easter. Lekharev raised his eyes to Mademoiselle Ilovaisky and laughed. They argue that there is no God, she went on laughing too. But why is it, tell me, all the celebrated writers, the learned men, clever people generally, in fact, believe towards the end of their life? If a man does not know how to believe when he is young, madam, he won't believe in his old age, if he is ever so much of a writer. Judging from Lihariv's cough, he had a bass voice but probably from being afraid to speak aloud, or from exaggerated shyness, he spoke in a tenor. 
After a brief pause, he heaved a sigh and said, The way I look at it is that faith is a faculty of the spirit. It is just the same as a talent. One must be born with it. So far as I can judge by myself, by the people I have seen in my time, and by all that is done around us, this faculty is present in Russians in its highest degree. Russian life presents us with an uninterrupted succession of convictions and aspirations. And if you care to know, it has not yet the faintest notion of lack of faith or skepticism. If a Russian does not believe in God, it means he believes in something else. Likharev took a cup of tea from Mademoiselle Lilovaisky, drank off half in one gulp, and went on. I will tell you about myself. Nature has implanted in my breast an extraordinary faculty for belief. Whisper it not to the night, but half my life I was in the ranks of the atheists and nihilists. But there was not one hour in my life in which I ceased to believe. All talents as a rule, show themselves in early childhood, and so my faculty showed itself when I could still walk upright under the table. My mother liked her children to eat a great deal, and when she gave me food, she used to say, eat. Soup is the great thing in life. I believed and ate the soup ten times a day, ate like a shark, ate till I was disgusted and stupefied. My nurse used to tell me fairy tales, and I believed in house spirits, in wood elves, and in goblins of all kinds. I used sometimes to steal corrosive sublimate from my father, sprinkle it on cakes, and carry them up to the attic, that the house spirits you see might eat them and be killed. And when I was taught to read and understand what I read, then there was a fine to-do. I ran away to America and went off to join the brigands, and wanted to go into a monastery, and hired boys to torture me for being a Christian. And note that my faith was always active, never dead. If I was running away to America, I was not alone, but seduced someone else as great a fool as I was to go with me and was delighted when I was nearly frozen outside the town gates and when I was thrashed. If I went to join the brigands, I always came back with my face battered. A most restless childhood, I assure you and when they sent me to the high school and pelted me with all sorts of truths, that is, that the earth goes round the sun, or that white light is not white but is made up of seven colors, my poor little head began to go round. Everything was thrown into a whirl in me. Navin, who made the sun stand still, and my mother, who in the name of the prophet Elijah, disapproved of lightning conductors, and my father, who was indifferent to the truths I had learned. My enlightenment inspired me. I wandered about the house and stables like one possessed, preaching my truths, was horrified by ignorance, glowed with hatred for anyone who saw in white light nothing but white light. 
but all that's nonsense and childishness serious so to speak many enthusiasms began only at the university you have no doubt madam taken your degree somewhere i studied at novocherkask at the don institute then you have not been to a university so you don't know what science means all these sciences in the world have the same passport without which they regard themselves as meaningless the striving towards truth every one of them even pharmacology has for its aim not utility not the alleviation of life but truth it's remarkable when you set to work to study any science what strikes you first of all is its beginning i assure you there is nothing more attractive and grander nothing is so staggering nothing takes a man's breath away like the beginning of any science from the first five or six lectures you are soaring on wings of the brightest hopes you already seem to yourself to be welcoming truth with open arms and i gave myself up to science heart and soul passionately as to the woman one loves i was its slave i found it the sun of my existence and asked for no other i studied day and night without rest ruined myself over books wept when before my eyes men exploited science for their own personal ends but my enthusiasm did not last long the trouble is that every science has a beginning but not an end like a recurring decimal zoology has discovered thirty-five thousand kinds of insects chemistry reckons sixty elements if in time tens of noughts can be written after these figures zoology and chemistry will be just as far from their end as now and all contemporary scientific work consists in increasing these numbers i saw through this trick when i discovered the thirty-five thousand and first and felt no satisfaction well i had no time to suffer from disillusionment as i was soon possessed by a new faith i plunged into nihilism with its manifestos its black divisions and all the rest of it i went to the people worked in factories worked as an oiler as a barge hauler afterwards when wandering over russia i had a taste of russian life i turned into a fervent devotee of that life i loved the russian people with poignant intensity i loved their god and believed in him and in their language their creative genius and so on and so on i have been a slavophile in my time i used to pester aksakov with letters and i was a ukrainophile and an archaeologist and a collector of specimens of peasant art i was enthusiastic over ideas people events places my enthusiasm was endless five years ago i was working for the abolition of private property my last creed was non-resistance to evil 
Sasha gave an abrupt sigh and began moving. Likharev got up and went to her. Won't you have some tea, dearie? He asked tenderly. Drink it yourself. The child answered rudely. Likharev was disconcerted and went back to the table with a guilty step. Then you have had a lively time, said Mademoiselle Lovaisky. You have something to remember. Well, yes, it's all very lively when one sits over tea and chatters to a kind listener. But you should ask what that liveliness has cost me. What price have I paid for the variety of my life? You see, madam, I have not held my convictions like a German doctor of philosophy. Tierlich mannerlich. I have not lived in solitude, but every conviction I have had has bound my back to the yoke, has torn my body to pieces. Judge for yourself, I was wealthy like my brothers, but now I am a beggar. In the delirium of my enthusiasm, I smashed up my own fortune and my wife's, a heap of other people's money. Now. I am forty-two. Old age is close upon me, and I am homeless, like a dog that has dropped behind its wagon at night. All my life I have not known what peace meant. My soul has been in continual agitation, distressed even by its hopes. I have been wearied out with heavy irregular work, have endured privation, have five times been in prison, have dragged myself across the provinces of Archangel and of Tobolsk. It's painful to think of it. I have lived, but in my fever I have not even been conscious of the process of life itself. Would you believe it I don't remember a single spring? I never noticed how my wife loved me, how my children were born. What more can I tell you? I have been a misfortune to all who have loved me. My mother has worn mourning for me all these fifteen years, while my proud brothers, who have had to wince, to blush, to bow their heads, to waste their money on my account, have come in the end to hate me like poison. Likharev got up and sat down again. If I were simply unhappy, I should thank God, he went on without looking at his listener. My personal unhappiness sinks into the background when I remember how often, in my enthusiasms, I have been absurd, far from the truth, unjust, cruel, dangerous. How often I have hated and despised those whom I ought to have loved, and vice versa, I have changed a thousand times. One day I believe, fall down and worship. The next I flee like a coward from the gods and friends of yesterday and swallow in silence the scoundrel they hurl after me. God alone has seen how often I have wept and bitten my pillow in shame for my enthusiasms. Never once in my life have I intentionally lied or done evil, but my conscience is not clear. I cannot even boast, madam, that I have no one's life upon my conscience. 
for my wife died before my eyes worn out by my reckless activity yes my wife i tell you they have two ways of treating women nowadays some measure women's skulls to prove woman is inferior to man pick out her defects to mock at her to look original in her eyes and to justify their sensuality others do their utmost to raise women to their level that is force them to learn by heart the thirty-five thousand species to speak and write the same foolish things as they speak and write themselves Likhariv's face darkened i tell you that woman has been and always will be the slave of man he said in a bass voice striking his fist on the table she is the soft tender wax which a man always moulds into anything he likes my god for the sake of some trumpery masculine enthusiasm she will cut off her hair abandon her family die among strangers among the ideas for which she has sacrificed herself there is not a single feminine one an unquestioning devoted slave i have not measured skulls but i say this from hard bitter experience the proudest most independent women if i have succeeded in communicating to them my enthusiasm have followed me without criticism without question and done anything i chose i have turned a nun into a nihilist who as i heard afterwards shot a gendarme my wife never left me for a minute in my wanderings and like a weathercock changed her faith in step with my changing enthusiasms Likharev jumped up and walked up and down the room a noble sublime slavery he said clasping his hands it is just in it that the highest meaning of woman's life lies of all the fearful medley of thoughts and impressions accumulated in my brain from my association with women my memory like a filter has retained no ideas no clever saying no philosophy nothing but that extraordinary resignation to fate that wonderful mercifulness forgiveness of everything Likharev clenched his fists stared at a fixed point and with a sort of passionate intensity as though he were savouring each word as he uttered it hissed through his clenched teeth that that great-hearted fortitude faithfulness unto death poetry of the heart the meaning of life lies in just that unrepining martyrdom in the tears which would soften a stone in the boundless all-forgiving love which brings light and warmth into the chaos of life mademoiselle lavaisky got up slowly took a step towards Likharev, and fixed her eyes upon his face from the tears that glittered on his eyelashes from his quivering passionate voice from the flush on his cheeks it was clear to her that women were not a chance not a simple subject of conversation they were the object of his new enthusiasm or as he said himself his new faith for the first time in her life she saw a man carried away 
fervently believing with his gesticulations with his flashing eyes he seemed to her mad frantic but there was a feeling of such beauty in the fire of his eyes in his words in all the movements of his huge body that without noticing what she was doing she stood facing him as though rooted to the spot and gazed into his face with delight take my mother he said stretching out his hand to her with an imploring expression on his face i poisoned her existence according to her ideas disgraced the name of Likharev. did her as much harm as the most malignant enemy and what do you think my brothers give her little sums for holy bread and church services and outraging her religious feelings she saves that money and sends it in secret to her erring grigory this trifle alone elevates and ennobles the soul far more than all the theories all the clever sayings and the thirty-five thousand species i can give you thousands of instances take you even for instance with tempest and darkness outside you are going to your father and your brother to cheer them with your affection in the holiday though very likely they have forgotten and are not thinking of you and wait a bit and you will love a man and follow him to the north pole you would wouldn't you yes if i loved him there you see cried lihariv delighted and he even stamped with his foot oh dear how glad i am that i have met you fate is kind to me i'm always meeting splendid people not a day passes but one makes acquaintance with somebody one would give one's soul for there are ever so many more good people than bad in this world here see for instance how openly and from our hearts we have been talking as though we had known each other a hundred years sometimes i assure you one restrains oneself for ten years and holds one's tongue is reserved with one's friends and one's wife and meets some cadet in a train and babbles one's whole soul out to him it is the first time i have the honor of seeing you and yet i have confessed to you as i have never confessed in my life why is it rubbing his hands and smiling good-humouredly lihariv walked up and down the room and fell to talking about women again meanwhile they began ringing for matins goodness wailed sasha he won't let me sleep with his talking oh yes said lihariv startled i am sorry darling sleep sleep i have two boys besides her he whispered they are living with their uncle madam but this one can't exist a day without her father she is wretched she complains but she sticks to me like a fly to honey i have been chattering too much madam and it would do you no harm to sleep wouldn't you like me to make up a bed for you without waiting for permission 
he shook the wet pelisse stretched it on a bench fur side upwards collected various shawls and scarves put the overcoat folded up in a roll for a pillow and all this he did in silence with a look of devout reverence as though he were not handling a woman's rags but the fragments of holy vessels there was something apologetic embarrassed about his whole figure as though in the presence of a weak creature he felt ashamed of his height and strength when mademoiselle lavaisky had laid down he put out the candle and sat down on a stool by the stove so madam he whispered lighting a fat cigarette and puffing the smoke into the stove nature has put into the russian an extraordinary faculty for belief a searching intelligence and the gift of speculation but all that is reduced to ashes by irresponsibility laziness and dreamy frivolity yes she gazed wonderingly into the darkness and saw only a spot of red on the icon and the flicker of the light of the stove on Likharev's face the darkness the chime of the bells the roar of the storm the lame boy sasha with her fretfulness unhappy lihirif and his sayings all this was mingled together and seemed to grow into one huge impression and god's world seemed to her fantastic full of marvels and magical forces all that she had heard was ringing in her ears and human life presented itself to her as a beautiful poetic fairy tale without an end the immense impression grew and grew clouded consciousness and turned into a sweet dream she was asleep though she saw the little icon lamp and a big nose with the light playing on it she heard the sound of weeping daddy darling a child's voice was tenderly entreating let's go back to uncle there is a christmas tree there stjopa and kolya are there my darling what can i do a man's bass persuaded softly understand me come understand and the man's weeping blended with the child's this voice of human sorrow in the midst of the howling of the storm touched the girl's ear with such sweet human music that she could not bear the delight of it and wept too she was conscious afterwards of a big black shadow coming softly up to her picking up a shawl that had dropped on the floor and carefully wrapping it round her feet mademoiselle lavaisky was awakened by a strange uproar she jumped up and looked about her in astonishment the deep blue dawn was looking in at the window half covered with snow in the room there was a great twilight through which the stove and the sleeping child and nazareddin stood out distinctly the stove and the lamp were both out through the wide open door she could see the big tavern room with a counter and chairs a man 
with a stupid gypsy face and astonished eyes was standing in the middle of the room in a puddle of melting snow holding a big red star on a stick he was surrounded by a group of boys motionless as statues and plastered over with snow the light shone through the red paper of the star throwing a glow of red on their wet faces the crowd was shouting in disorder and from its uproar mademoiselle ilovaisky could make out only one couplet hi you little russian lad bring your sharp knife we will kill the jew we will kill him the son of tribulation Likharev was standing near the counter looking feelingly at the singers and tapping his feet in time seeing mademoiselle ilovaisky he smiled all over his face and came up to her she smiled too a happy christmas he said i saw you slept well she looked at him said nothing and went on smiling after the conversation in the night he seemed to her not tall and broad-shouldered but little just as the biggest steamer seems to us a little thing when we hear that it has crossed the ocean well it is time for me to set off she said i must put on my things tell me where you are going now i to the station of klinushki from there to sergiev and from sergiev with horses thirty miles to the coal mines that belong to a horrid man a general called shashkovsky my brothers have got me the post of superintendent there i'm going to be a coal miner stay i know those mines shashkovsky is my uncle you know but what are you going there for asked mademoiselle ilovaisky looking at Likharev in surprise as superintendent to superintend the coal mines i don't understand she shrugged her shoulders you are going to the mines but you know it's the bare step a desert so dreary that you couldn't exist a day there it's horrible coal no one will buy it and my uncle's a maniac a despot a bankrupt you won't get your salary no matter said lihriv unconcernedly i am thankful even for coal mines she shrugged her shoulders and walked about the room in agitation i don't understand i don't understand she said moving her fingers before her face it's impossible and and irrational you must understand that it's it's worse than exile it is a living tomb oh heavens she said hotly going up to lihariv and moving her fingers before his smiling face her upper lip was quivering and her sharp face turned pale come picture it the bare step solitude there is no one to say a word to there and you are enthusiastic over women coal mines and women mademoiselle lovaisky was suddenly ashamed of her heat and turning away from lihariv walked to the window no no you can't go there she said moving her fingers rapidly over the pane 
not only in her heart but even in her spine she felt that behind her stood an infinitely unhappy man lost and outcast while he as though he were unaware of his unhappiness as though he had not shed tears in the night was looking at her with a kindly smile better he should go on weeping she walked up and down the room several times in agitation then stopped short in a corner and sank into thought Lichariff was saying something but she did not hear him turning her back on him she took out of her purse a money note stood for a long time crumpling it in her hand and looking round at Lichariff, blushed and put it in her pocket the coachman's voice was heard through the door with a stern concentrated face she began putting on her things in silence Lichariff wrapped her up chatting gaily but every word he said lay on her heart like a weight it is not cheering to hear the unhappy or the dying jest when the transformation of a live person into a shapeless bundle had been completed mademoiselle ilovaisky looked for the last time round the traveller's room stood a moment in silence and slowly walked out Lichariff went to see her off outside god alone knows why the winter was raging still whole clouds of big soft snowflakes were whirling restlessly over the earth unable to find a resting place the horses the sledge the trees a bull tied to a post all were white and seemed soft and fluffy well god help you muttered Lichariff, tucking her into the sledge don't remember evil against me she was silent when the sledge started and had to go round a huge snowdrift she looked back at Lichariff with an expression as though she wanted to say something to him he ran up to her but she did not say a word to him she only looked at him through her long eyelashes with little specks of snow on them whether his finely intuitive soul were really able to read that look or whether his imagination deceived him it suddenly began to seem to him that with another touch or two that girl would have forgiven him his failures his age his desolate position and would have followed him without question or reasonings he stood a long while as though rooted to the spot gazing at the tracks left by the sledge runners the snowflakes greedily settled on his hair his beard his shoulders soon the track of the runners had vanished and he himself covered with snow began to look like a white rock but still his eyes kept seeking something in the clouds of snow end of section 11